Well, good morning. It's good to be here in the pulpit. If you were here last week, uh, you may be a little concerned because we made you play games in the aisles. We did songs and motions. You won't have to worry about that. There will be an opportunity for you to participate later in the service, so get ready for that. Um, but this morning, we're going to preach a, a full sermon. We're going to be in Psalm 47. So I encourage you to open your Bible to Psalm 47. I'm going to go ahead and read the first verse. This will be at least the third time you've heard this this morning. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. We've read it now three times, but this psalm, Psalm 47, is actually connected in Jewish tradition uh, with the service of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And as they uh, celebrate the New Year, uh, Psalm 47 has become associated with that, uh, mostly because of verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with a sound of a trumpet. Uh, it's the shofar there that they're talking about, the um, trumpet that would be blown. And during a Rosh Hashanah service, they would read Psalm 47 seven times. So we're not even halfway there yet with the first verse. We're not going to read it seven times. Uh, but also during this Rosh Hashanah service, you would hear the trumpet blast uh, over a hundred times in one service. We don't have any trumpets here. We won't be doing that either. But I mention that because that really sets the setting or the stage for the song. It's loud. It's excited. It's clapping and shouting. We have loud songs of joy. And in the Jewish tradition, they're shouting, they're singing, they're praising, their trumpets are going off. And so it made me think as I approach this psalm, and we're going to look at the rest of the verses here, I wonder if those actions, those attitudes, that kind of um, excitement and joy shows up in our church, in our hearts, as we prepare for worship. Um, you can sense the joy and the excitement that's here in verse 1, but I wonder on your way to church, I wonder when you come, um, whether it's January 1st or whatever today's date is, July something, that we come excited with anticipation um, that we're coming. Clap, shout, loud songs. That's the message of verse 1. Be excited. We have something to be excited about when we worship God, which is the theme of this psalm. We should do it with enthusiasm, with our whole being. Worship, as you know, isn't just showing up to church on Sunday morning. It's a component. I'm glad you're here. This is worship this morning, but worship is more about our attitude, our lifestyle, how we approach and respond to God. And so with that being said, we're going to take the rest of the psalm here. We're going to look at the God in heaven as he reigns in our response. And I believe our response to God's reign is one of worship. So what we're going to do this morning as we walk through these verses is we're going to look at four simple reasons. Four simple reasons why we should be worshiping God. Now, the reasons are simple, but my challenge to you this morning is to consider in these four reasons or in maybe one of these reasons, where can you go deeper in your response of worship with God? So consider that as we walk through this together. We just read verse 1, verses 2, verses 6, and verses 7 tell me that we worship God because of who he is. Look at verse 2. For the Lord the Most High 
is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. Now skip down with me to verse 6. Sing, sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. Why should we worship God? Well, the first simple reason is because God's king. God's king, God's sovereign. He's in control of everything. He has put everything in order. God has created the universe. God sustains the universe. Nothing happens without God allowing it. God is the only one who is worthy of our worship. He is sovereign. He is king. Not only is he king, he is the perfect king. Because God is infinite, we could go on about his infinite qualities. He's perfectly just. He's infinitely wise. He's eternally loving. And on and on we could go. But as I think about just worshiping God because of who he is, two questions come to mind. The first one is this. How do you view God? This may be the most important question of the morning because I agree with Tozer who says the what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why is that? Why is it so important how we view God? Well, simply because how we view God is going to affect how we respond to Him. How our view of God is going to frame how we live our life. I think... There's probably a lot of people that have wrong thinking about God. There's a lot of philosophies out there. There's a lot of false assumptions, bad ideas. They're not, don't come from scripture. This morning we're not going to go into who God is, but I would challenge you. Here's an area. If you don't know much about God, if you're like, don't have an answer of how do you view God, get into the Word. Go into the Bible and say, what is God like? Let the Bible answer those questions. There's some good books out there. I can recommend some to you. But I think the place we start is the Word of God. The books that we read are based on the Word of God because we need to have a correct view of God because a correct view of God, a high view of God, is going to result in our humbling and our responding in worship. But if we have an incorrect view of God, if we have a low view of God, what that does is it tends to put us in the center. It turns to... It tends to put us as God, and that's not a good place to be. But the next question that comes after how do you view God, I've already kind of mentioned it here, is how do you respond to God? The appropriate response to God is worship. But how do you define worship? Right? We already said that just coming to Sunday morning worship service doesn't constitute worship in and of itself. So what's worship? Well, worship, I don't believe, is measured in a quantifiable form. Worship is measured within our own heart's devotion. It's measured in the amount of love and response that we have towards God. William Temple, he defines uh, worship like this. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of mind with His truth, the purifying of imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, the surrender of will to His purpose. All of this gathered up in adoration. 
the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. William Temple is saying worship is about everything we are and everything that we respond to. It's all wrapped up in worship. And so we can't just define it as singing or we can't just define it as coming to church. Worship is about the whole being and how we as a whole and every day respond to God. So with that understanding, I just want to focus here because we see it time and time again, even in this psalm, that there is a component of engagement. There is a component of excitement when it comes to worship. Now, I'm probably the wrong guy to talk about this because my personality is kind of like I stand here. This is as excited as I get like at church. <laughs> uh, so that, I understand that. We all have different personalities. You, you may be more expressive in your worship. You may be the one clapping your hands and raising your hands, and that's awesome. There may be some of you that are maybe more like me and, and you're a little more reserved, and that's not how you feel comfortable I would say that's okay as long as we are focused on God. But if the reason why we're standing like this is because we're afraid of what the other people are thinking around us or we don't want to be embarrassed or something like that, I, I think that's wrong. I think what Scripture says is when we worship, we are so focused on God that it doesn't matter. We are free to express our worship in any way that we see fit. As, as, as we sing, as we clap, as we shout, as we raise our hands, that's what this psalm is saying. I tend not to do that. So if you're not about the, like the raising the hands and the shouting and stuff, let's just go for like some louder singing, some more enthusiasm. Maybe, maybe we could smile like when we come to church, right? That, that could be how you express your like excitement because some of, maybe it's me too, struggle smiling sometimes. And, and that's just, that's good. It should be expressive though, right? Get it? The worship is about who we are. And we come not as a show to anybody else, but we come as we respond to God simply because of who He is. But I don't want to lose you on all the shouting and singing and, and, and all that stuff. So look back at verse 7. Verse 7 says, For the God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. If you look at a couple other translations, the King James says, Sing ye praises with understanding. The New American Standard says, Sing praises with a skillful psalm. And the Net Bible, I like how they put it, they say, Sing a well-written song. Where does this come from? Well, this word in the Hebrew is actually um, masculine. And... We're not exactly sure what it means. That's why there's a variety of um, translations. But it's used 13 times in the heading of the Psalms. And from the content of the Psalms, we pretty much understand masculine to mean teaching or instruction. And so I think what the psalmist is saying here in verse 7 is saying, hey, we, be, we should be excited. We should be clapping our hands and shouting because of who God is. But don't miss the intellect. We're not all emotion. We're not just here um, externally. We need to engage our minds. We need to think about what we are singing. We need to think about what we preach. We need to put thought into our worship. 
This is not a mindless thing. There's a problem with like mind emptying stuff. Our mind is central to our worship. But we should have both. We need our emotions engaged with God. We need our mind and our intellect engaged with God. Let's not lose one in favor of the other. Some of us, maybe this is me, like, well, I know enough about God. I don't need to be that expressive. No. If you know a lot about God, you're going to be expressive. Because that's who he is and that's how he has created us to be. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we, we care not only about worship as singing, but worship as teaching. Worship as an opportunity to consider the lyrics. I wonder how many of us, and I, I, I would confess this is me sometimes, we come to church, we see the words on the screen, we kind of know the tune, and we hum along, and we sing a little bit, and then the song's over, but we don't really know what we just have sung. And I think what this psalm and this little verse has encouraged us to do is don't zone out. Engage your mind. Think about what you're singing and, and what you're saying. And it's not just singing. So I wonder how many of you parents take the opportunity to stop with your children, to describe who God is and why He should be worshipped. If you take that opportunity as you go on that walk to say, stop, look, who created this? Take those opportunities to teach. That is worship. So we engage our emotions, we engage um, our minds, and, and it all is wrapped up in worship. And so my guess is maybe we don't do this as often as we should. So here's the interactive part portion of the sermon. We're going to practice. We're going to practice right now, kind of being a little loud, standing up, having some courage, saying something out loud in front of everybody. So, But I'm going to help you out. This is what we're going to do. We're worshiping God because of who he is. So we're going to Someone is going to stand up, and I'll do it first. We'll say, God, we praise you because you are. And then everyone's response this morning to this phrase is amen. Simple, one word, but we're talking about clapping our hands and being enthusiastic, so it's not amen. It's amen. Okay, so this is your chance to be a Baptist. Okay. (laughs) God, I'm going to go first, okay? God, we praise you because you are loving. Amen. Who's next? God, we praise you because you are forgiving. Amen. God, we praise you because you are sovereign. Amen. God, we praise you because you are a healer. Amen. God, we praise you because you are Amen. Forgiving and faithful. Amen. Amen. That feels good, right? We can we can shout Amen in church. It's okay. All right. But so this psalm it teaches us that we not only should worship God because of who He is, but we're going to continue in the next couple of verses and see that we should worship God because of what He has done. Look at verse 3 and verse 4 in your Bibles with me. Psalm 47. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. 
He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. So as this psalm goes on, they're writing and they're thinking, God, we praise you because of who you are. And then we come to these couple of verses and they start thinking back to the past and the history of Israel and saying, God, we worship you because of all that you have done for us. You have protected us. You have provided for us. You have conquered nations um, for us. You have given us an inheritance and a promise. As you go through and you read the history of Israel through the Old Testament, you get the idea pretty quickly, these people aren't surviving without God's help. And that's what they're remembering. God, you are a good God. We worship you. We respond to you because of everything that you've done for us. But as the church, on this side of the cross, we not only look at what God had done and had done for Israel, we look back to some other corporate events as well. And in the biggest is described most often and best by John. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's something we look back on. And we say, God did that. God provided that for me. I think that verse can be some, become so common that we forget to really remember it. We remember the words, but maybe we forget the meaning and the significance. As a church, as a Christian, let's not forget. God did that for us on our behalf. And so we can look at different events and how God used missionaries and apostles and He sustained this movement and that's how we are Christians today. But we can also look just personally in our own lives and say, Man, I have a lot that I should be thankful for. I have a lot of things in my life that I can remember and my response should be worship. Get ready. We're going to have another participation thing coming up right here. Okay, So we can remember the things that God has done for you, for your family. We can think about how God has answered prayer. We can think about how He's brought that comfort or brought that healing. We can think about all these different things that God has done. So we're going to practice. We're going to just help each other because one of the things that I think is the benefit of the church is that we get excited. We get encouraged when we hear the stories, when we understand all that God is doing amongst us. So this is how we're going to do this one. God, we worship you because you have. And then our corporate response is praise the Lord. Okay, so I'll do the first one and then you guys get ready for a couple more. God, we worship you because you have sent your son to die for me. Praise the Lord. Who's next? God, we worship you because you have loved us. Praise the Lord. God, we worship you because you have defeated us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so good. So we so we worship God for who He is, for what He has done, but we also worship God because of what He is doing now. Look at verse five. 
And we're going to look at verse 8. The Psalms usually don't go in order. They're poetry. They're, they emphasize things differently. That's, that's why we're not going straight down the line. But we hit every verse here. We worship God because of what He's doing. Look at verse 5 in your Bibles of Psalm 47. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with a sound of a trumpet. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The picture here that I believe the Israelites or the Jewish readers would imagine is one of coming back from battle and victory. When the Israelites would go out, the Jewish nation would go out to the battle, it was said, or the easy way to kind of think about it was God came down and fought for them. Israel didn't do it themselves. God came down and fought for them. And as they had victory, they would come come back. And if you just won a battle, you're coming back. You're singing. You're shouting. As they're going back up to Jerusalem or going back into their towns, they're going up with a shout. Because God has reigned victorious. The other idea that it could have conveyed would have been the same idea just with the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. And as the ark came back to Jerusalem or up to the temple, that same idea of God's going up with a shout. We're celebrating victory and we're celebrating that God is with us. Present tense. Verse 8 says God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. What that tells me is that God is reigning now. God is on His throne today. So what does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with as I live my life? Well, there's two things that are connected that I think are important. There's probably a whole bunch of things, but just two here. Number one, it means that nothing can happen that God is not aware of. God's on His throne over everything. Nothing is surprising God. The chaos that's happening this week the bad people that are out there, the bad people who think they're in charge, is not surprising God. God knows. And number two, it means that nothing is happening that will stop God's plan of redemption and reconciliation. It may look bad. And it does look bad. God knows. God's on the throne. He is sovereign, He is king, He is in control, and His plan is going forward. But again, I think as we look at this in the light of Jesus, it takes on a little more significance. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Now I want you to take that verse and think about Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. Imagine the picture. Jesus, who left heaven to come down to earth on a rescue mission for mankind, accomplishes His mission, defeats sin, death, and the grave, spends time with the disciples, and then says, I'm going home. As He literally rises up before them, He ascends to the right hand of the Father. Do you think there was anyone excited in heaven to see Jesus come back at His rightful place right next to God the Father? I think there was. I think Jesus has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of the trumpet. He was victorious 
over death. He was victorious over sin and the grave. Ephesians 1 tells us that God worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21 says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And then Hebrews says it a little simpler in chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That tells me that it's Christ who is seated on the throne. That tells me that it's Jesus who is currently reigning over His kingdom. That tells me this is the reason why this psalm has been connected with the Christian tradition of Jesus' ascension. Because of that shout of victory as He goes to heaven. But I think understanding the universal role of Jesus as king and reigning, it prompts a couple other questions. It's good that we understand that Christ is reigning over all things. But the question then comes, do I consider Christ king in my life? Now we're getting a little more personal because it's kind of easy in a theological kind of way to say, yeah, Jesus is sitting on the throne and He's reigning over everything and He's in charge. And I'm a Christian. I believe all that. Oh, then that must mean He's king over me. Does your life reflect that? Is that really what you believe in practice or is it just something nice that we kind of know and understand? Oh yeah, Jesus is in charge. Because if Christ is king in or over my life, it means that I'm following His Word. It means that I'm in His Word. It means that I'm submitting to His will. It means that I have a servant's heart as I am willing to serve my King. That's a response of worship. And so understanding the universal reign of Christ is good. But don't let that stop you from considering Christ reigning over your heart and your actions right now. And that leads to the other question that comes to mind. Do I live according to Christ's kingdom principles? You see, I think there's a lot of people in this world right now that may question, is Christ really reigning? Because, man, is God really in charge here? Because there's a lot of bad things going on and a lot of messed up stuff. And say, yeah. But I also believe that part of God's plan is to use His church to display His kingdom values, to display His kingdom principles. And we have to ask ourselves, am I individually displaying the kingdom principles of Jesus? Over and over again, Jesus, as He lived on this earth and as He taught His disciples and followers, He said, you think this way, but I say, because my kingdom is not here, it's spiritual. 
I'm concerned with your heart, with your motivations. He was teaching his disciples a pretty radically different way to go about their lives. I think this is immensely important in our society today, in our culture today. We think of the events of this week. How, what is a Christian supposed to do? Well, a Christian is supposed to live by the principles of Jesus Christ. A Christian is supposed to live according to what Jesus said as he lived here. If you're unsure of what that is, you can, I would tell you to start in Matthew chapter 5 and then 6 and then 7. Because he says kind of crazy things like love your enemies. Like bless those who persecute you. Like blessed are the peacemakers. This is what the church should be leading culture towards. This is what the church should be an example of. Peace. Patience. Long-suffering. Love. Joy. Hope. The church has answers for a hurting world. Are you hurting? Jesus. Are you struggling? Jesus. Racism? Jesus. But my fear is Christians aren't really living out Christ's kingdom principles. And so the world, when they should be seeing shining examples of hope and love and grace and forgiveness, are seeing the opposite or nothing. We should worship God because of what He's doing. But what part of what He's doing is us. Is the church. So let's make sure we're living our lives according to His kingdom principles. Because while we cannot see His physical kingdom right now, that's why we live by faith. We live by faith. We center our lives around kingdom living. And we wait. Read you a couple of verses here and we get to our last point. First Corinthians fifteen twenty five says, He, speaking of Christ, must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. In Matthew sixteen, Jesus says, The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He's talking about his church. Revelation seventeen, the kings of the earth are arrayed in battle against Christ, but it says they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. In other words, because he is the ruler of the kings on earth, he cannot be defeated. We worship God not only because of who he is. We worship God not only because of what he has done and what he is doing, but we worship God because of what he will do. Christ is coming back. He is sitting on a throne of a spiritual kingdom. But that spiritual kingdom will be manifested here on earth. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with shout songs of joy. 
The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This is God's plan. That one day, people from every nation, tribe, people group, language, will worship the one true God. When the Jews would read this psalm, they would go back to the promise of, to Abraham. One of the first promises God gave to Abraham was that all the nations would be blessed through him. How? How would all the how could possibly all the nations of the world be blessed through one dude? Well, because from the promise started to Abraham, I don't mean this irreverently, there came another dude. His name was Jesus. Galatians three tells us this. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. It's more simply put here in Ephesians 3, 6. I'll read it for you. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. We know as Christians through faith in Christ, we are guaranteed that same spiritual inheritance as God's people. Because we are God's people through faith in Christ. We know from Scripture that Jesus will one day come back again. He will establish His kingdom here on earth. He will set everything right. These verses remind us that every ruler, every nation will be put under His subjection. Everything on earth will be His. So what does that have to do with worship? Well, I think the answer is this. Our attitude and our approach to life becomes our worship. We are devoted to the Lord each day because we are His. We feel a burden for the lost because we know God's heart is for them, and He, His desire is that people from all nations and all peoples would come to a saving knowledge of Him. So we have a burden for the lost, and we take our mission seriously to reach others for Christ. That's why we have VBS. That's why we decorate like this. That's why we went to New Mexico. We go to Guatemala and we send people to the Philippines and all across the world because we know that God's heart is for them and we get to be a part of His mission. And we live that way in light of His return. That He is coming back again. We view every day as a gift from God we take advantage of every opportunity to share, to worship, to love well. 
our lives become worship based on who God is, based on what He's done, based on what He's doing now, and based on the knowledge of what He will do. Our lives become worship.